0: Hey, I brought with me another top 10 list this morning. You You guys ready for this? Are you ready for this? This is the top 10 statements you'll never hear a dad say. The top 10 statements you'll never hear your father say. Number 10, come on, son, step on it. You're driving like your mother. Number nine, well, how about that? I'm lost. Looks like we'll have to stop and ask for directions. (laughs) Number eight, you know, princess, now that you're 13, you'll be ready for unchaperoned car dates. Won't that be fun? (laughs) No. (laughs) Number seven, take the remote. It's all yours. (laughs) (laughs) Number six, here's my credit card and the keys to my car go crazy (laughs) number five son forget mowing the lawn it's Saturday it's your only day to sleep in (laughs) number four your mother and I are going away for the weekend you might want to consider throwing a party for your friends (laughs) (laughs) number three well I don't know what's wrong with your car have your mom take a look at it (laughs) you'll never hear a dad say that number two No son of mine is gonna live under my roof without an earring. Now quit your belly aching and let's go down to the mall. (laughs) And the number one thing you'll never hear a father say, why do you wanna go out and get a job? I make plenty of money for you to spend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those things never came out of my mouth, man. Well, we've had a wonderful time. I've had a wonderful time. We uh, kicked things off by, Pastor Charlie set the stage for us and gave us a, a timeline and talked about the, uh, the Antichrist in the seven years of tribulation. We talked about the day of the Lord in our first session. You know, today is the day of man. Man's having his way. Man's getting his say. But the day is coming when God's going to have his say. and God's going to get his way. The Lord will get the last word. Then we talked about the rapture of the church, how excited we are to be looking for Jesus. And we learned that the shout is actually going to be a mariachi uh, band uh, shout, Uh, sort of like Juan over here, but I'm a little worried about Juan because I'm afraid he's really confused. He's a mariachi band singer wearing a fighting Irish uh, shirt this morning. That's about the strangest mixture I've ever seen in my life, Juan but uh, we learned about the rapture we're listening for that mariachi call and then uh, last night we learned that Jesus is not baby Jesus anymore he's not even gentle Jesus anymore he's a mighty man of valor he's mighty in war and he's mighty to save and we're looking forward to, uh, to his return he will right all wrongs and he will set things in order and we will live forever under his reign And then uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the aftermath of his second coming and the kingdom that he's going to establish on this earth. And we're going to bring all these lessons back to where we live. We're going to take some lessons for today from the end of the age. And this morning, I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel chapter 47. If you attended church as a child, you might know this tune. It was a Sunday school favorite of mine for sure. It's called Deep and Wide, and it even has hand motions. It goes deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing, deep and wide. Just be thankful I didn't try to sing it. (laughs) But I bring this up. Because I've entitled my message this morning, Deep and Wide. Ezekiel chapter 47, I wanna read the first 12 verses. The prophet begins Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east, and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters, the water came up to my knees. And again he measured 1,000 and brought me through, the water came up to my waist. Again he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. He said to me, This water flows toward the goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it from in gedi to in eglaim There will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea exceedingly many but its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Father in heaven, thank you for this glorious picture of a future day when the world will be at peace, when Jesus will be on the throne, and we'll be worshiping him, and we'll be enjoying a Shangri-La, a world as it was meant to be. Father, we thank you for your mercies and your promises to us, Lord. Now we live in tumultuous times we live among persecution and tribulation lord we know this world is going to go through convulsions and incredible judgments but lord we believe that it will emerge just as you intended that you will redeem that you will restore that in the end the new creation will be even more beautiful than the first lord i pray that you would speak to our hearts today and encourage us to go further with You, to go deeper and wider with You. We thank You for the river that flows in our hearts. And we ask that You bless us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Barnum & Bailey Circus once had an exhibit they called the Happy Family. A cage featured lions and tigers and panthers all squatted around a little lamb. The fierce predators seemed at harmony with the lamb. One day, P.T. Barnum was showing off his exhibit. Someone asked him, do you ever have any problems with this strange mixture of animals? Barnum replied, oh, never. Apart from replenishing the lamb every now and then, they get along just fine. (laughs) So much for the happy family. As much as we would like for it to be true that everyone just gets along, in this world it's not. Predators exist among animals and among men. But one day Jesus will return and he will end the hostility caused by man's sin. He will usher in an age of peace. We're told in Isaiah 11 verses 6 through 9, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord." What an amazing time that will be. The conflict boiling over in the world today will be a distant memory. Understand, God's redemption will not be complete until all that sin has twisted has been restored. One day, all that sin has soiled will be cleansed of its stain. Romans 8 verse 22 puts it this way, For the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Right now, the creation groans over sin's effects. When the trees creak, When the frogs croak, they do so in a melancholy tune. Andrew sings, the hills are alive with the sound of music, yet sadly they sing in a minor key. For all of nature knows that things are not as they should be. They're not as God meant for them to be. But one day Jesus will remove the curse of sin. The Bible teaches that on a day yet future, Jesus will return, he'll defeat his enemies, he'll establish his kingdom in Israel and around the world, and he'll launch an age of peace and prosperity that will last for a thousand years. At that time, Jesus will roll back sin's curse on nature, the world, all its ecosystems will morph, pollution will vanish, the oceans and the ozone will be repaired. When Jesus sits on the throne, wolf and lamb, man and animal will live as one big happy family. Once a woman, she bragged to her pastor that she had a one-way ticket to heaven. The pastor replied, well, if that's the case, you're going to miss out on a lot because I've got a round-trip ticket. Hey, when we depart this earth via undertaker or rapture, it's not going to be our last visit here. For we're coming again. Jude 14 tells us about Jesus' second coming. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. And if you know Jesus, you'll be one of this army of saints. The Bible teaches that when Jesus returns to take over the earth, he's not coming alone. You and I will be by his side. We'll be commissioned to reign and rule with him. In that day, the Lord will usher in a golden age, a Shangri-La. He'll put an end to sin and all its tragic consequences. Jesus has saved our soul, but one day he's going to save this planet. He's going to restore the polluted planet to a garden of Eden, and you and I will help him govern. This is what Ezekiel 47 is about. Ezekiel foresees an environmental miracle. He looks ahead to the kingdom age in the land of Israel at the future temple in Jerusalem and he describes his vision in verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. Now whenever I read this verse, my first reaction is not a pleasant one. I squirm. For there have been a couple of occasions when I've come up to the doors of our church and I've noticed water flowing out from under the threshold. And it is not a good thing. Once a toilet got stuck and overflowed. Another time the ice maker sprung a leak. Came up the whole back part of the church was flooded. Still another time the the gutters clogged up and a few classrooms got flooded. I mean, usually water under the threshold is not a good sign for the pastor who comes to the doors of the church. Not so though for Ezekiel, for when he sees water seeping out from under the threshold of the temple, he gets excited. Hey, the Middle East is a region of the world rich in oil but sparse in water. Any trickle of water is a blessing. And this is especially true in and around Jerusalem. You know, most Israeli cities, they have public fountains and pools, but not in Jerusalem. You don't see them there because water is a scarce resource. Have you noticed that large urban areas are almost always located on a river? Babel was built on the Euphrates, Cairo on the Nile, London on the Thames, Rome on the Tiber, Atlanta on the Hooch. (laughs) But Jerusalem has no river. In ancient times, its chief water supply was a spring. The Gihon spring feeds the pool of Siloam. Whenever we go to Jerusalem, we walk up Hezekiah's tunnel. Do you guys do that, Charlie? We walk up Hezekiah's tunnel. The water flowing through is from the Gihon spring. Here, what the prophet Ezekiel sees is a new subterranean spring on the Temple Mount. It's bubbling up from the holy place, flowing south of the altar pure, fresh spring water is rising up near the altar of God. And Ezekiel notices the further this water flows, the deeper and the wider that it grows. He's escorted into the stream. He and his tour guide go with the flow. Ezekiel jumps in and he wades in the direction of the current. He walks about a thousand cubits downstream. Now realize a Babylonian cubit was about 21 inches, thus a 1,000 of them would be 1,750 feet, or 583 yards, or put in terms that you men will understand, nearly six football fields. (laughs) Ezekiel is standing there in ankle-deep water, splashing his sandals, cool water feels good on a hot day but then he wades another 1,000 cubits downstream. He's now off the Temple Mount and he's standing in the middle of the Kidron Valley. The water level now is up to his knees. He's still having fun though. He's kicking around, wading through the current. This stream is like a gentle brook. Ezekiel and his guide then go another 1,000 cubits southward. He's now 3,000 cubits or about a mile downstream. And now the water is up to Ezekiel's waist. He's tucked his robe up under his belt so that he can wade in the water. The current is getting stronger. It's becoming faster. Finally, Ezekiel moves another thousand cubits southward. Now four thousand cubits from its source, what was once a trickle, has become a full-fledged river. The prophet Ezekiel is now in over his head. The powerful river is too swift to swim. It's too wide to cross. Ezekiel has to get out of the water and walk along the river bank. And there he makes another startling discovery. The water is so clean and pure, its banks have sprouted groves of various trees. The river has become a source of nourishment. It helps to spawn foliage and fruit. Verse 12 says that the leaves on these trees never wither. Their fruit never fails. I mean, these are fruit trees that never grow dormant. They blossom with new fruit every month. The river makes them continually productive. Even the leaves on these trees are useful. They contain healing ingredients. Rather than take medicine, people just eat leaves from these trees. Imagine needing a prescription filled and rather than go to the pharmacy, all you have to do is order off a salad bar. (laughs) Ezekiel follows this river another 40 miles to its ultimate end. From the spring by the altar, to a trickle in the temple, to the creek through the valley, now a river in the desert, it finally dumps into the Dead Sea. And there another miracle takes place. The saline depths of the salt sea are healed, and the sea springs with life. Realize the tap water from your faucet contains about 1% salt. When you go to the beach and swim in the ocean, the water there is about 7% salt. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is about 12% salt, but the Dead Sea is 33% salt. That's five times saltier than the ocean. In fact, salt crystals form a white foam that just sort of sits on the surface of the sea. When you swim in the Dead Sea, the water is heavier than your body, which makes it pos- impossible for you to sink. You don't have to tread water in the Dead Sea. You can just lay down and relax and read your newspaper and the water keeps you above the uh Keeps you above the surface. The salty water holds you up. And it's this enormous salt content that makes the Dead Sea dead. Nothing can live in its waters. No animals drink from the sea. No fish swim under the surface. The Dead Sea is the ultimate dead end. Yet when the water from the temple reaches the headwaters of the Dead Sea, a healing will take place. The lethal salt gets neutralized. The river that flows from God's house purifies the sea's poisonous waters, and from En this wonderful oasis on the northwest shore, I'm sure you've been there, to En which is today a dried up spring on its south shore, what was once a dead sea will all of a sudden teem with life. In fact, fishermen will cast in their nets. That's just mind boggling. We're told in verse 10 their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea exceedingly many the great sea is the mediterranean imagine here the dead sea will become a fisherman's paradise there's one of my buddies there uh, in the future the same genre of fish you find today in the ocean of the mediterranean you'll find in the dead sea imagine charted fishing excursions operating on the Dead Sea. That's unbelievable. And notice the amazing promise in verse 9. Notice verse 9. Everything will live wherever the river goes. (coughs) Let me repeat that. Everything will live wherever the river goes. Whatever God's river touches, it heals. It has a curative tonic. Every putrid pond, every cesspool, every stagnant eddy into which this water seeps will be transformed. And this is just a little glimpse of the incredible transformations that will take place all over the world when Jesus rules the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. If Jesus is able to heal the waters of the Dead Sea, Cleaning up an oil spill in the Gulf is no problem. Ezekiel 47 teaches that one day there'll be a little bit of heaven everywhere on earth. The planet will become a garden. The whole world will become a tropical paradise. And let me suggest that what we see happening in Ezekiel 47 isn't just fulfilled in the end of time. I believe it occurs anytime Jesus is allowed to sit on the throne, even the throne of a person's heart. What will one day occur on planet earth can take place today in the spiritual life of a person who surrenders the crown and course of their life to Jesus. To me this end times river is analogous to God's influence in a Christian's life. You remember Jesus promised us in John 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. When I surrender the reins of my life to Jesus, when I give him all my heart, a love and peace and joy and energy and power begins to bubble up in me. A spiritual current of life-giving vitality flows into areas of my life that were once dry and dead. As the living water flows, transformation occurs. There's a story that's told from Joe Montana's college days at Notre Dame. I was glad you wore the shirt here this morning. (laughs) The famous quarterback, he took a course entitled, Introduction to, to the New Testament. Well, in fact, this class was popular among all the football players, not because they were particularly interested in the Bible, but because the tired old professor who taught the class always gave the same final exam. Just one question. Trace and discuss the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. A good answer to that one question would earn you an easy A. Well, when it came time to take the exam, everyone was shocked. When they turned over the test, And it had a different question. It read, offer a critical analysis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I mean, a sigh went up from all over the room. No one had prepared for this question. But Joe noticed one of his linemen scribbling feverishly. Later, his teammate was bragging that he'd gotten a B-plus for the course. Joe asked him how he had answered the surprise question. The fellow said, he said, well, Joe, when I saw he wanted a critical analysis of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I wrote, who am I to criticize the words of the master? But I do have something to say about the journeys of the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Then I wrote what I had prepared. (laughs) And I could say to you this morning, Well, Joe, when you stop criticizing the master and start allowing Jesus to call the shots in your life, a river of spiritual life and power and healing will begin to flow from deep within your heart. With the time I have left, I want to examine how this future river spoken of here in Ezekiel 47 acts like the living water of God's spirit that flows and transforms us. There are three points, if you're taking notes, there's three points that I want you to write down and consider this morning. First, how it spreads. Second, what it spawns. And third, where it starts. Three S's, how it spreads, what it spawns, and where it starts. For as soon as a person surrenders their life to Jesus, I mean, really turns over the control of their life to Jesus. It invites him to take over their heart. A spigot turns on inside. God's river surges into that person. As the river in Ezekiel 47 bubbled up in the temple, a river of spiritual influence springs up in the life of a believer. And notice first how this river spreads it begins as a mere seepage it turns into a trickle then into a stream then into a creek then into a mighty river in essence it builds gradually and incrementally it widens and deepens as it flows as we sang as kids there is a fountain flowing deeper and wider when you first jump into the christian life the living water is fun it's like a trip to the water park it's like splashing in cool water on a hot summer's day the word relief fits i mean your sins are forgiven man the guilt is gone it's like an anvil that you've been lugging around for years it suddenly rolls off your shoulders You're given a new lease on life. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But as you go with the flow, this initial euphoric experience deepens and widens. It's like Ezekiel's experience. As he waded further and further into the river, the current got stronger and stronger. The flow got deeper and deeper. Finally, Ezekiel was submerged. You could say he was in over his head. And likewise, the further you go with God, the more profound, the heavier the experience becomes. You know, the longer I stand at the foot of the cross, the more I realize what it costs my Lord to earn my forgiveness. An appreciation grows. It grips my allegiance. I realize that Jesus is not just my Savior. He's also my Lord. His ways and will are best. And I begin to want His influence more and more in my life. I want His input to permeate more and more of my thinking. In time, I even develop a sense that I want to serve Him. My life begins to turn in directions that will count for God. You know, talk to missionaries who've made huge sacrifices to follow Jesus, and they'll confirm that it didn't happen overnight. When they began with God, they had no idea where the path was going to take them. I mean, they were just happy that they were forgiven that they knew God. They got into the flow. And by faith, it carried them places that they never thought they'd go. But it's this incremental progress that becomes a stumbling block for some folks. Because some of us want to start off from the high dive. I mean, we're the kind of people that jump into the pool at the deep end. They're determined to be a spiritual giant from the start. It's a prideful attitude, really. Well, if I can't be the greatest Christian ever, then I just won't be one. Wait a minute. Some people view the Christian life as self-achievement, as mastering a lifestyle rather than as following the master. You see, the truth is God makes us all get into the pool at the shallow end where we can learn to swim correctly. This is why humility is a prerequisite for becoming a Christian, You begin the Christian life by dismounting your high horse and humbling yourself. You begin the Christianity, your Christian experience, by embracing little child status. Realize when you begin anything, you do so as a beginner. Whether it's playing golf or woodworking or stock investing or being a Christian. There's no need to be embarrassed by it. You're just a beginner. None of us start out our Christian life with instant maturity. It takes time. We're all novices in the beginning. Nobody becomes a Christian and presto, he knows all the books of the Bible instantly and can quote scriptures and can teach Bible studies. doesn't work that way. You get in the river at once, but going on requires you wading further and further down the stream. See, Ezekiel started out ankle deep. Then he found himself knee deep. Then waist deep. Then he got in over his head. But the important thing is that he started and he stayed. He stepped into the river and he stayed in the river. He trusted the river and he went with the flow. He didn't get out, he kept walking. Downstream, the water got deeper and wider. And your Christian experience will deepen as you go. You know, it starts out as a desire for God's forgiveness and for his blessing. But ultimately, it changes our character. It does something deep in our hearts. It also widens as we go. It starts out as a personal interest for me and my needs. But eventually, it broadens into a burden and a concern for other people, perhaps even the whole world. It's deeper, and it gets wider as we go. Reminds me of the bank robber. He hit the same bank three times. When the police interviewed one of the tellers, they asked if she noticed anything different about the man. She answered, well, yes. Each time he robbed us, he seemed a little bit better dressed. Laughter Obviously the robber was gaining a little momentum as he went, wasn't he? He was moving forward in his chosen line of work. And this is what happens to you when you continue on with God. The current gets deeper and it gets wider. You get caught up in the momentum, God's momentum. It grows stronger. You know, sins you once overlooked start to bother you now. Your life grows purer and holier. You too become better dressed spiritually as you go. You no longer care only about yourself, you start seeing other people's needs. It's amazing how this river spreads. But it's also interesting what this river spawns. In Ezekiel's vision, trees grow up along its banks that sprout fruit. There's even healing in the leaves. And when the river mixes with the stagnant waters of the Dead Sea, God's river wins. It neutralizes the poison and it stimulates life. The living water allows fish to hatch and animals to drink. It becomes a source of life. What does this river spawn? In a word, it produces healing. And this is also what the river of God brings to our hearts. The river of God's Spirit brings healing. I'm sure you've noticed this world is a cold, cruel place. It's a minefield armed with emotional bombshells that hurt us and harm us. Oh, the disappointments and the heartaches and the losses and the pain and the setbacks that you've endured. How many of us have ever wondered if the enemy hadn't slipped in and secretly booby-trapped our lives? Is anything going to go right? But whatever this river touches, it heals. It neutralizes what's acidic. The trees that are watered by this river have healing properties in their leaves. You remember while on earth, Jesus' ministry was characterized by numerous and incredible healings. The river flowed then with healing and it flows today with the same healing. In Luke 4, Jesus tells us why the Father sent him into the world. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. When the life-giving water of God begins to bubble up in your life, it slowly but it steadily washes over open wounds. It neutralizes the bitterness, the hatred, the pride that kept those wounds infected. It now irrigates irritated areas begins to siphon off the emotional mucus that kept you from healing. The river of God's Spirit brings healing wherever it flows into whatever it touches. Let me just say, this is what's needed in our country today. The racial tensions that exist are eating us up. Even after all the progress that's been made politically, civil rights legislation, even the election of an African-American president, still no one trusts each other. Let me say, only Jesus can bring the healing that we need. As long as we're black and white, nothing will change. We need to be new creatures, new creations, a third race, the Bible calls us. We need to be that new man in Christ. This is how we should see ourselves and see others. See, here's what happens to people who are lost without Jesus. Stuff goes on outside their life. They trip and they fall. They're slammed down and let let down. They're victimized. And this is the same stuff that happens to Christians. We live in the same world with the same heartaches, but there's a difference. Stuff still happens to me, but now as a Christian, There's stuff going on in me to encourage me, to strengthen me. I'm not a stagnant pool anymore. My life is being irrigated by God's river, that spiritual life that's flowing through me. And it's that river that keeps the healing flowing. If you've been hurt, even deeply so, if you gave your love to a woman who then dumped you, if you gave years of hard work and productivity to a company that's now dumped you, if you gave your best efforts to an ungrateful child that has sadly now dumped you, if you just feel dumped on and rejected and pained, you need to get into the river. You need to splash and immerse yourself and be baptized in God's river. Old people can jump in. Yes, they can. Teenagers can jump into the river. Even old married guys can jump into the river. My advice to you is just get into the river, man. Trust me, the river of God's Spirit is powerful. And this river can't be explained. It carries miracle cures. When it collides with the salty water of doubt and fear and depression and failure and hatred and prejudice... It strips sin's saltiness of its power. It answers doubts and calms fears and strengthens weaknesses and stirs up love. It cancels out the rejection of people with the overwhelming acceptance of God. There is power in this river. My advice to you today, no matter where you are, get into the river. Notice again verse 11. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. If you've ever been to a swamp or to a marsh, you know that the water just sits there stagnant. Scum festers on the surface. Bugs and flies circle over the top of the water. And if we're honest, we will admit that there are some swampy and some marshy areas in our lives that remain sinful and poisoned and dead. Maybe we've become selfish and self-serving in a relationship. Maybe we've held on to a nasty habit for too long. Maybe we've been harboring an ugly bitterness. Is there an area of your life that's a spiritual swamp? It's the scummy part of your life, and it really bugs you? Well, it's happened for one simple reason. You've set up barriers that keep the river from flowing into that area. Levees of pride, dams of selfishness, sandbags of stubbornness are blocking the river from flowing. You need to tear down those barriers today. You need to let the river invade those swampy places. I repeat, wherever the river flows, it brings healing. Is there an area of your life this morning where you need to allow the river to flow into that area and bring the healing God desires? It's amazing. The river Ezekiel sees in this chapter how it spreads, what it spawns, but I also want you to notice where it starts. Remember, Ezekiel first saw the water bubbling up under the threshold of the temple right next to the altar. If the prophet had tried to jump into the river further downstream, he may have drowned. But Ezekiel took that first step of faith in the temple right next to the altar. See, the river of God flows through all of life. It fills up the valleys and it flows through our deserts and it pours into the sea. But it always starts in the temple at the altar. And this is where each of us have to begin with God. We come to God on His terms, on His turf. In a sense, God will meet you anywhere, at the swimming pool or at the pool hall, in the boardroom or on the boardwalk, in the bakery or in the factory. But wherever it is that God meets you, He always brings you back to one place, the beginning place, the altar. If you had actually visited the former Jerusalem temple, the altar would have been your least favorite spot. Oh, you would have loved the inner courts, especially the Ark of the Covenant, the glory of God hovered over the Ark. You would have loved the table of incense. It gave off a fragrant smell. You would have been amazed at the golden lampstands. They were such a work of art. Oh, you would have admired those lampstands. But the altar? Man, that was the bloody place. That's where the sacrifices were offered. At the altar you would have seen the innocent lamb bleeding as the priest grabbed its woolly neck and slit its throat with a sharp knife. You would have heard that animal screech and then moan in agony and then exhale a final guttural gasp. Nobody ever liked being taken to the altar. But in this new, still future temple, that's where the river starts. Today, the altar of God is not an altar in a temple. The altar I'm talking about is not the front of a church, even though sometimes we call it the altar. No, today, the altar of God is the cross of Jesus Christ. For that's where the blood was shed. That's where the price was paid. At Calvary's cross, my sin and your sin were laid on Jesus' innocent shoulders at his cross, Jesus paid our penalty and earned for us a permanent pardon. There's a famous photo that was snapped by journalist George Strock, which featured three dead Americans, three dead American soldiers on the beach at Buna Beach in New Guinea. This particular photograph has since been titled, The Photograph That Won World War II. It was taken 18 months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And though tens of thousands of our fighting men had already died in battle, not a single photograph of a fallen American soldier had been put into print. But in September of 1943, the government relented. It changed its policy, and it gave to Life Magazine the uh, permission to put this photograph on their pages. You see, Life Magazine sensed that the civilian commitment to the war was waning and the public needed a reminder of the urgency of victory. This image made the conflict real in the minds and hearts of every American. And it relit a spark in our country to do all that we could to support the war effort. This was the photograph that won World War II, and this is why the Christian life really does begin at the cross. For it's at the cross that our hearts learn to love Jesus, and they learn to love other people with a sense of urgency. It's at the cross where we see our need. That he would have to go there and do that for us, we're desperate. It's at the cross where we see His love. That He would do that for me? Are you kidding? How loved I am. It's at the cross that we see our need. That we see every man's need. We sense our sin's severity and the depths of God's love. You know, whenever you put a boat into the lake, you need a ramp, don't you? You need a launching point. And the same is true for us spiritually. And that's why for us, the river begins at the cross. There's no other way. There's no other entry point. The cross is the getting in place for God's mighty river. Shun or scoff or ignore the cross of Jesus and your life will stay swampland. It'll remain bland and boring and stagnant and polluted and poisoned and terribly infected. If you don't begin at the altar, you'll never know the flow of God's love and healing and forgiveness. There is a fountain flowing deep and wide, but today it flows from the wounded side of our Lord Jesus Christ. It all starts, the healing bubbles up at the altar of the cross. If you want to go wading in the life-giving river of the Spirit of God, if you want God's influence and healing to spread deeper and wider in your life and in your world, it starts on your knees next to the altar. All the miracles that Jesus will ever do in and through your life were paid for and originated at the cross of Jesus Christ. You'll never be gloriously in over your head drowning in God's love if you don't humbly get in at the cross.